Guess what? What? You're an author. Oh, my God. You're right. You wrote a book. I did write a book. And it's called Stop Blaming Mothers and Ignoring Fathers, How to Transform the Way We Keep Children Safe from Domestic Violence. Right. And it's available on Amazon, Amazon. Kindle. It's softcover. It's hardcover. Yeah. And it's a book that lays out six myths that really dive into these gaps in the field that the safety of the models is meant to fix or transform. Mm-hmm. It talks about gender double standards. It has interviews with practitioners and, and survivors. survivors and practical things you can do. But it really kind of is it's good for anybody who knows the model or is new to the model. And uh, I'm really excited about it. It only took two and a half years to do. Okay. Well, go get the book on Amazon.com. And we're back. And we're back. And we're here. It is... Technically, Valentine's Day in the United States, and Tiberius the dog is ever between us. That's right. On our Sunday morning podcast recordings. That's right. This is partnered with a survivor, and this is Ruth Stearns Mandel, and I'm the e-learning and communications manager. And you may hear Tiberius the dog in the back, obsessively licking himself. And I'm David Mandel, the executive director of the Safe and Together Institute, and uh, this is... uh, um, like Ruth said, partner with Survivor, and, and this is a podcast about things related to domestic violence. It's about the Safe and Together model. It's about conversations Ruth and I have about different topics, uh, which is what today is going to be about. We're going to talk mm. about systems manipulations by perpetrators right. and why those systems are, are vulnerable to those manipulations. And, and how to spot those manipulations right. and use them as part of that perpetrator's pattern of right. behavior. That's right. Yeah. And we also do interviews. And uh, it's one of our favorite parts of of doing this show is we get to interview really cool people from all over the world. And, and yeah. if you've listened to this season already, you heard an interview with Jess Hill. And, and Ruth is working on some great interviews. We can't tell anybody no, not for, yet. for coming up. Not yet. And um, so I wanted to start by talking about how this – I don't want to say this topic for this podcast came about, but just how we work together because I'm, I love it. And <laughs> Ruth is, you're a, a social media creature. Um, I'm like a crawler. You're like a crawler. You if, know? if you don't know what that is, that's a, that's a tech term. You know, you go out into the, into the tech sphere, into the, into the media sphere and you find different bits and pieces of relevant information and you bring them back that's right. And you bring them back to, to me, to us. And, and you're talking to survivors. You're, you're following trends on social media. Mm-hmm. You're reading articles. And, and then what often happens is you come to me, share a story with me, or you come to the request for right. some material. And, and one day you popped up and said, you know, I want you to put together some material on how perpetrators manipulate systems. Right. I felt like there was a real gap in the industry where we talk a lot about how perpetrators manipulate their victims. We do talk somewhat about how perpetrators manipulate individuals around them, but very, very rarely have I heard any type of reflection on how perpetrators manipulate legal means such as litigation or entities like the police or child protection by false allegations 
um, or uh, the family court system in order for them to harass and harm their uh, adult co-parent um, and also impact how that impacts children, that ongoing perpetration. Um, legal means of harassment, such as specious litigation in right. family court or in right. criminal court, has been widely allowed by the system, by judges, by lawyers, and we have allowed victims to be harmed and financially abused through not acknowledging it as an industry. And I wanted us to acknowledge it as right. an industry and face it, name it, claim it, and change it. Okay. Yeah. And so you came to me and, and I, I immediately saw the, the need for it, the fact that you were right. We had a gap and I right. started writing some stuff about about this and the, and the larger framework for me came into to focus pretty quickly, which is I started thinking through a tiered system. Right. And tier one, and, and this is the initial kind of formulation of a tier one is, is the formal systems of, uh, family court, child, statutory child welfare and police and, and law enforcement, <laughs> yeah. criminal courts. And, and the way I conceptualize that and just mm -hmm. for people thinking and please give us feedback on this because this is really evolving and this is a conversation is these are systems with formal coercive power of, of really ultimately the legal system behind it to enter orders, to change people's lives, to, to limit, you know, freedoms, you know, right. control access to kids. Um, and, and then a second tier mm -hmm. of these other systems like the mental health and addiction systems and the, and the specialist family violence right. services that, um, that feed into, in some ways, they have their own power in their own right, but they're often very influential. So I think when we talk about today about systems manipulations of of um, by perpetrators of these systems, mm -hmm. we we butt up against really quickly around issues of addiction right. and and mental health, particularly uh, because those industries, and I'm going to call them industries today, are very influential and powerful in the decision making of right. Uh, you know, family court or decision-making of child welfare. Well, when you think about the practical implications for a victim and survivor's life of being uh, harassed via um, court orders within, for example, the child protection or family court system, you really can get how financial abuse and harassment and coercive control continue. If you have a perpetrator who has more power and more money, Right. And more legal means, maybe they're a police officer, which is not uncommon that, that perpetrators who are police officers use legal means to harass and stalk their victim, just skirting the law just enough to, to, to not be detected. But the pattern is always very much similar. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's a police officer, um, if it's a politician, a judge, or it's some meth head living in a in a in a trailer in Kentucky. They use the same patterns. It's really a, stunning and really amazing. And so I thought, why aren't we talking about these patterns? Which number one, if I was a judge, I would want to know that my court was not being used as a tool of perpetration. I would want to know what the warning signs were for that. And I would absolutely not allow that in my courtroom. And I would appropriately reprimand 
the lawyer or the perpetrator who is using my courtroom that way. But judges don't have this information. So I wanted to bring this information to people who care about not having their systems used and manipulated by perpetrators so they could be aware of the pattern and they could appropriately respond to it. So in response, you asked me for the behaviors of the perpetrator. I also came back, in addition to those behaviors, I came back with why those systems are vulnerable. vulnerable. I think, you know, I think it's important to understand this is where, um, as professionals and people who influence policy and systems, we need to to self-reflect and, and like you said, give right. tools, right? give tools to people, um, you know, where they can say, wait a second, maybe we can close this vulnerability. Right. So let, at least maybe we can be aware of it. We can be vulnerable. aware of it. So let's right. start with, with statutory child welfare and, and talk about that. And again, this isn't a system that I've thought about this first tier, this, this kind of court ordered thing. Right. How do perpetrators, how do perpetrators manipulate statutory child welfare? Well, number one is, False allegations. False allegations. Right. And and this is where immediately you start getting into this intersection of, of mental health and addiction issues because right. frequently those false allegations Center. are yeah. around, yeah. well, this person is using drugs. This person is mm-hmm. uh, has mental health issues. Has a PTSD diagnosis. That's right. By the way, which I caused. That's right. We've actually, seen, <laughs> we've actually seen child welfare. Um, uh, well, I'll, I'll say it this way. We've actually seen perpetrators acknowledge that they were violent to her and that their behavior caused the PTSD. But still. But then the system still giving him the child because because he hasn't been physically violent to the child. And it's been deemed that she can't care for the child because of her anxiety and depression or whatever so else. So he just gets to have another being to break. And I think that when you name the vulnerability there, it's the vulnerability of disconnecting the the um the adult to adult violence and also right. not seeing domestic violence perpetrations a parenting choice makes those systems vulnerable to giving kids to people who have a history of violence but against such, the other parents. Such the irony that parental alienation is used, but that's that's classic. That's a real version of parental alienation. That's right. Like that's that's actually how the term should be used is when a perpetrator uses the system to alienate the victim from their children. Right. That so so really think about the the implication to children right. of losing one of their parents who has been caused harm by the other parent and the system handing that child who experienced all of that and lived in that environment and I'm sorry you don't need to witness a partner hitting another partner for children to be impacted by Absolutely. that environment that's ridiculous thinking. And if you think that you've never lived in domestic violence or coercive control as a child, in fact, it makes me so angry. I just start to, but you cannot take a child and hand those children to a perpetrator, allow that perpetrator to then form their view of the world of life and of behaviors, which are acceptable and expect that you're not perpetuating the cycle of violence. That's absolutely insane. We'll be back after a quick break. Before you listen to this great episode of Partner with Survivor, we'd just like to tell you about a powerful new practice tool the Safe and Together Institute has launched. Our perpetrator pattern mapping tool has been available for 10 years, but now it's available for the first time in a web-based version. What it does is really help you map perpetrators' patterns of behavior onto child family functioning, talk about its intersections with mental health, substance abuse, 
and other issues, address intersectionalities, worker safety, all in an easy-to-use online package that protects the confidentiality of your information and lets you wrap it all up in a neat little package, basically, to print it out and to kind of document all those different pieces of information. This is a tool that can be used by both survivors and practitioners. And for the very first time, it's available immediately online without any other prior training. The training is embedded in this powerful practice tool so that teams uh, that have not been trained in Safe and Together can immediately begin mapping in an effective way. That's right. It's like having a safe and together coach in your back pocket is what I like to say. There you go. So we really encourage you to go to our virtual academy, academy.safetytotherinstitute.com. Check it out. You know, you can subscribe to it immediately or you can check out a free demo version for 30 days. So please reach out to us and try this new tool. Now enjoy this great episode of Partner with Survivor. So with, you'll see a theme here, which is with, particularly with family court and child welfare, one of the big forms of power, why this manipulation is so impactful and so important to name is, is because it's a way for the perpetrator to, to use the threat of losing children yes. against the other parent. Which is the biggest threat of which all. Which is the biggest threat. You talk to survivors and, and they'll tell you over and over again, their biggest, their biggest fear is not of getting hit. And I don't nope. want to minimize that at all, but but they'll say over and over again, I'm worried about losing my kids. Or, or the children being hurt. Or the kids being hurt. And 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 so when you look at domestic violence perpetrators, you must see how they use children, how they target children, how they target the relationship between uh, uh, that other parent and the children. And I remember when I was doing men's behavior change work years ago, that um, w- one of the more insidious uh, threats was, if you leave me, I won't see the children. And and when you break that down, why that's a powerful threat is, it requires um, an understanding of that perpetrator, of the emotional intricacies of the yeah. relationships. Right. I know that the kids love me as the per- even though I'm I've been violent. I know you love the kids. I know that when I remove myself from the kid's life the kids will suffer and that their suffering will hurt you. Well, it's, it's very, because, it's very complex because the, because there's always a level of responsibility placed on the victim's head right. for having enough, uh, perpetration to leave number one. Okay. People won't accept a low level of perpetration in in family or friends or pastors, They'll say, this is just normal relationship conflict. Right. So you have to actually rise to the next level of right. perpetration for the victim to feel like they're justified to leave because we take the we take the parental bond so incredibly seriously, mm-hmm. and we don't want our children to blame us for harming the relationship that they may have with their other parent, which is good. But we're constantly trying to walk a line of safety mm-hmm. and protecting the children. And we have all of these pressures on us, not just from the perpetrator, from professionals, from family members, from religious leaders, from mental health professionals who claim that this is a marital issue, not a domestic violence or coercive control issue. And we're told that as the responsible party, we're supposed to work it out and preserve that relationship for the children. So again, it's interesting that even that 
accusation is placing all the responsibility on the victim for the quality of the relationship between the children and the perpetrator. Well, and that's, you, that's an interesting... Right. right. And, what, and what you're speaking to is the, the things that make uh, the systems, the professionals in them, because the systems <laughs> are made up of professionals. They're made up of how professionals interact with policies right. and protocols, but how they make them, how they're vulnerable to perpetrators. And I think it, to me, that was, in some sense, I was less interested when you asked me about this, you know, how do perpetrators manipulate systems? Because I was so familiar with it. Right. For me, naming the the ways that the system is vulnerable, vulnerable. to manipulation <clears throat> and and can and can make itself um, easy prey yeah. to a perpetrator. And you think about, for instance, that um, most uh, guardians ad litem or best interest attorneys or, or evaluators that there's very little expectation formally that they have education and training in domestic violence. Right. And so therefore what you're doing is taking a, a, a and a friend of mine used the term naive practice, this naive practitioner mm-hmm. evaluator who doesn't mm-hmm. understand domestic violence, doesn't understand perpetrators tactics is coming in with a, with a, with a mental health framework usually, mm-hmm. you know, a sense of diagnoses and, and, mm-hmm. and therefore, um, they're going to be looking for anxiety. They're looking for depression, maybe in both parents, maybe in one. And then they're not trained to think beyond the four walls of that clinical setting right. and safety issues and how to integrate them and how to integrate controlling or behaviors. Or how the environment, of course, of control impacts children That's in right. a real and direct way. That's right. And so, therefore, they become easy prey to the manipulation <laughs> of the perpetrators as they think they're doing the best job possible they can do. I mean, right. that's what's so tricky. Right. And that's what, where people can become really defensive. Well, I'm right. doing my job and I'm, I'm using evidence-based tools and I'm, right. I'm doing these things, but, but they're not being trained in a way to protect themselves from being the target. Right. Of the perpetrator's manipulation. And our own biases about what perpetrators act like and look like often get in the way of people recognizing that they're being manipulated. Perpetrators are not usually the scary monsters that most people believe them to be. They're very charming. Right. They're very intelligent. Um, they're very concerned about image, a lot of them. Um, and so they're going to use all sorts of tactics which seem like legitimate and normal tactics in order to get their way. That's right. So staying with child welfare for a minute, you know, we've got perpetrators who will call and make allegations against uh, a new partner that she has. So again, think about course of control. Right. You have a new partner. I don't want you to leave me. I want to maintain control. I want to punish you. And so I pick up the phone, call child welfare and say, you know, the mother of my kid, she has a new partner and he's sexually abusing the kids. I know of even a better one about an old partner where there was prior children children involved and the new partner who was abusive and coercively controlling immediately started managing the family court case for the old partner and the two children to try to remove custody from the other the other parent because they didn't want them involved. You know, so it doesn't just need to be new partners. It can also be right. old partners, but it's an extreme amount of control. So when we look at, you know, child welfare, and some of these issues are going to really be very similar across family court and, and child welfare is, 
is this use of allegations. For me, one of the biggest ones, allegations around addiction issues or mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And I hear stories regularly because we're working on more projects, looking at the intersection of mental health, domestic violence, and uh, addiction issues. And so we start hearing these stories over and over again of allegations that the partner, the victim partner, is doing drugs right. with no evidence. No evidence. No evidence. And then you get a court order that mandates that that partner has to go and get drug tested right. every week, right? Which is a resource drain, which is stressful. But really what the perpetrator is doing is they're showing their power and control. They're saying, I can control the system, even though you've never had a positive drug right. test, you've never had a history of drugs, I can get the system to torture you for me. Right. This that is, what is very powerful. Even, and I, I, you know, even know a case where he did that from jail. He was in prison. Right. And he called the welfare worker and the welfare worker went out and, 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 and hair tested mom. And, and it was in the, the process of doing training with them that, it, that he realized, oh my God, I was just played yep. by this guy because yep. she has no history and the hair test came up negative. Right. And, now my relationship is damaged. I think one of the things is... Right, the trust with the survivor is right, now damaged. Is, is right. to understand the, the multiple layers here of harm. Yeah. You know, you said, you know, I'm demonstrating to you I can control other people. I'm demonstrating I, get what I, I want. can control the system. I can do it from prison right, even. Right, But But then on I top can be of, a convicted domestic violence offender right. and still get the system to harass you that's for right. me. That's right. And that there's not even a questioning of that. <laughs> And so I think child welfare, unfortunately, because it, of its siloed mental health and domestic violence and, and addiction services, I think those fields, I think because the evaluators, uh, history of focusing on, on mothers who are usually the survivors right. and being punitive to them, ignoring the fathers, that we have this really perfect storm mm-hmm. of, of vulnerability and manipulation. So these allegations um, get made. And, and in the old days, I mean, this is... If you think about this and you don't know the systems, one is the cases are often opened up in the mother's names. So immediately, even if it's, if it's the dad or the male caregiver's violence that's creating the harm, the message of the system is you're, this, we have a case on you, not him. Right. And, and you can make all the pretty explanations as bureaucratic. It doesn't mean anything, mm-hmm. but, but, but she's going to understand it as, oh, I have a case open on me. And he's going to understand it as they didn't open a case they on me. They didn't open any case on me. Right? And, and then he's going to use it against her. Right. And so imagine the threat in these environments. Say, well, go ahead, call the police. The police can call child welfare and... And, and find out that there's a case open on there's you. There's a case open and they're going to take the kids from you. And right. how that isn't an idle threat. No, that's not. And, and so when we look at these systems, we really have to understand both the behaviors of the perpetrator and the vulnerabilities if we're really going to make any headway on this. Right, And I think the other thing is, is we have to understand the pattern of manipulation that perpetrators employ no matter what the system is. Because the reality is, is, is that it doesn't matter what the system is. Perpetrators will find a way to try to manipulate it to their best interest. And as professionals, we need to be aware that that manipulation is potential of how it's usually done, of where it usually lands, what's usually used as a tool, and then how to resist that manipulation. We have to train professionals to actively resist right. perpetrators' right. manipulation. And when I tell, when I train, and we're, we're training a whole group of wonderful um, mental health and addiction 
and domestic violence professionals in New South Wales right now in a project um, that we're doing with with uh, Kathy Humphreys. And and um, one thing that we'll do teach them around, and this actually is taught in our intersections e course as well, is if you have somebody with a history of of, of violence and depression. Mm-hmm. And they are suicidal or make suicidal threats. Right. You actually have to assess for three separate things. You have to assess for danger of self-harm. Um, you have to assess for danger to others. Right. Right. Because there is a correlation between those things and, and violence, including homicide to others. Yeah. But you also have to assess for manipulation because the threat to kill oneself is a huge and powerful tool of manipulation mm-hmm. that perpetrators do all the time. And so you you have to be that to me, those three layers really kind of encapsulates the complexity of the assessment process. And I'm gonna give I'm gonna give professionals a little cheat sheet for suicidal manipulation. How you tell the difference between suicidal manipulation and valid suicidal tendencies that's per, perhaps being used against a victim. Number one, perpetrators will use suicidal manipulation all the time. They'll use it a lot. It's not, it's not a rare incidence to happen. It will happen quite regularly. But when you have a victim who's being terrorized by a perpetrator, that <clears throat> tension builds up over time and that mental health starts to erode. And there's usually one or two sort of like, I'm going to kill myself if I can't get out of this situation. So it's really good for you to assess why, number one, they are threatening suicide. Are they threatening suicide to keep something? Or are they threatening suicide to be able to leave to something? Escape. That's right. And I think, it's very yeah. easy sort of to apply. <laughs> well, I think that's another place where, where perpetrators manipulate systems because they will manipulate. And this is both in child welfare and in family court. Right. And somewhat in police, but the, the setting in police... And criminal court's a little bit different because right. they're focused in a different way. But this is where, and I've gotten more clear, and you've helped me with this, I think, in, in some ways, which is that that the um, that mental health diagnosis, mm-hmm. while often given in the context of a professional wanting to help somebody, help them get better, help treat them, talking about a survivor now. Right often creates a vulnerability for the survivor in in child welfare systems in uh, family court that perpetrators are happy to exploit over and over again. Yeah. Uh, Because domestic violence perpetration isn't a diagnosis. Coercive control isn't looked at through a mental health lens. It's looked at a behavioral and a social lens that, that perpetrators do not show up with the same level of, of, pathologies identified by mental health practitioners. Well, a lot of perpetrators resist going to counseling anyway. That's so right. So they would never get a diagnosis anyway. That's but right. their partner, who's being assailed, probably tries to avail themselves to the mental health industry in order to make sense of what's happening. And they've been given a diagnosis, rather than being told that they're being coercively controlled and abused. Right. Which I very much object to professional mental health people doing. You should tell people when you know that the pattern of behaviors you're hearing is abuse. You should name it and you should say it because you actually may save a life. Well, and this is, if you listen to our last, was our last episode on trauma bonding? Was that the last one or a recent episode on trauma bonding? You know, we're talking about this, which is 
similar thing about about these issues being used against survivors. Um, but that um, there were these researchers who were talking about um, the referring of uh, victims of sex trafficking as being trauma bonded, oh and they were they were like, why are we using language that is masochistic? Is 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 a throwback to this idea that there's masochism and that people like it and they're choosing it. And, and they suggested, I don't have it at the tip of my tongue, alternative language that really centers the perpetrator's control and the coercion yeah. for why somebody remains trapped. And I think we've got a long way to go. And I think mental health professionals, I've got a master's in license in professional counseling. So I'm in that field that, that we have a long way to go to really upgrade our practice. So we do a better job integrating. Right. Uh, into our conversations, our case formulations, and I'm going to say diagnoses, the the coercive control that happens outside the clinical setting, mm-hmm. and to really think about how we document and advocate for survivors, and really put put our mental health and our professional um, credibility into advocacy right. for that survivor. We say, wait a second, this person's depression is a normal response to these behaviors. Hey, everybody, you should be looking at these behaviors because these behaviors over here by this other person, they're very problematic if we're we're considering safety of kids, if we're considering, uh, um, you know, the the well-being of a family. And that that you have to ask yourself, do you do, as a mental health practitioner, do a good job pointing those first-tier systems, like I said, like child welfare or family court, at the source of the problem, because they are looking to you right, to as a professional right. to create that evidence and to be the the um, the create the recommendations. Because judges will say, "Well, I'm not an expert in mental health. I, I lean right. on my professionals." Right. And child welfare workers that I've worked with will say, "Well, I'm waiting for the report from the professionals." Mm-hmm. And so that second tier, so to speak, mental health folks, that their vulnerability to being manipulated mm-hmm. and their siloed clinical thinking that doesn't really integrate in the course of control that may have caused it mm-hmm. may still be going on and and then doesn't have a vision of themselves as an advocate in those systems that will really make this person's mental health better, make their situation safer, right. that I think we need a really transformative view of, of mental health and addiction in this area. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. So we, we've kind of skipped around between ch- police, child welfare and criminal court. Um, let's talk about the vulnerabilities within, um, the court system itself and why it lends itself to being manipulated by perpetrators. So family court, right? Family if we're going to talk about family court. Yeah. I've got a list here. Oh my God. I've got Give a list. Your list. Um, <clears throat> family court susceptible to manipulation by domestic violence perpetrators because, um, of the history of, of, of a very gendered use of parental alienation or right. concept like that against right. mothers that then becomes um, used against domestic violence survivors who try to protect their kids, may leave with their kids to keep them safe, right. you know, are talking to their kids about the violence, all these different things, mm-hmm. then becomes fodder. For that diagnosis. For that diagnosis and then right. being identified as the problem, for right. instance. A lack of... Um, Understand that domestic violence continues to be relevant post-separation. Right. I and it's often most relevant within the court context. If there's not a high level of danger, um, coercive control and domestic abuse are most relevant in the family court context. That is the most common way that perpetrators harass 
and harm financially their victims. And really, we really have to start facing this and looking at it as a phenomena and having policies around good judicial practice so that we can be assured that the system is not being manipulated by a perpetrator. When you speak to this other really broad vulnerability, which is a lack of understanding of, of the dynamics of curse control. And again, right. I want to bring that back to the professionals who guide judges and magistrates, not just the judges and magistrates, right. but you know, somebody said to me once, judges, this is a judge, he said to me, my job is, is to read pieces of paper and make decisions. Right. You know, I think we've all been kind of um, all these uh, courtroom procedurals on TV where there's these big trials and lots of evidence and witnesses and testifying that a lot of cases that judges are only reading motions and right. and briefs presented to them. And so how things are described and documented is, is super it's important. Vital, right. Um, Lack of understanding of the intersection of course control, domestic violence, child sexual abuse, child physical abuse. Mm -hmm. Again, the siloing of, oh, if you perpetrated violence against the adult, then unless I have really strong evidence of child abuse, um, and if, and if there was child abuse, this other system would have found it. Right, right. So the gaps between the two systems. I, I think that's a really huge issue. I think, you know, we, we can touch on that more, but, but but we're talking about each system individually. The truth is, particularly these first-tier systems, you know, criminal justice, family court, and uh, child welfare, they interact with each other, and they're, they all kind of impact the survivor and mm -hmm. the perpetrator. And like I said earlier, yeah. if I'm going to call the police, I have to worry about if I'm a survivor, are the police going to call child welfare? Right. And what difference is this going to make in family court? And if I've never called the police, right? right. Family court's going to look at me and say, well, this is incredible. Because you haven't called the police. That's right. But what if I'm uh, a black woman who's afraid of calling the police, you know, because right. of racism, or Aboriginal woman who's or afraid of calling the police. Or what if you're the partner of a police officer and the right. police officer is abusing you? Why would you call the police? Right. <laughs> you know. Um, I think another big area um, is, is attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and their, their skill level and expertise Right. In this area. And I think, again, um, you know, when I've looked at areas of, of legal ethics, yeah, um, much like other professionals, you're not supposed to practice outside your scope. Right. But the question is, how is scope defined? Right. And I think we're not supporting and expecting attorneys who are busy, who have to make a living. We're not supporting them being mandated to know a certain amount of information about, especially if they're family court attorneys. Right. About domestic violence and domestic violence dynamics. So they can really accurately and 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 um give a full throated defense of of or advocacy for their well, this for is their a really, client if they're a survivor. Right. This is a really tricky issue because even the court itself knows that the the level of, of contention and litigation within family court is incredibly high, and they don't see it in the best interest of the children, right? But at the same time, there's no there's no consistency or rules surrounding um, the you know litigation, specious litigation. What happens when that when that occurs? How do you ascertain that that's happening? 
you know, what do you do as a judge when you have a person who's continuously bringing allegations before your, your, your docket just because they are a perpetrator and they are truly harassing their client and a lawyer is participating in this. All of this seems very normal to people. It is a normal process. It does happen commonly within the family court system. And so I think part of it is, is really stripping it out and making it clear that this is a manipulation. This is a pattern of perpetration. And as people who are concerned about justice and trust of the justice system, we have to trust the justice system is working. We have to come up with a solution to this. And uh, and a lot of people will be upset about it because it will reduce the amount of of hours they get to bill. It's this is all real. I, I know, and it's, <laughs> it's hard. And I, I think about you know what does it take? Because I remember being somebody shared with me a case where where the perpetrator of domestic violence had filed four hundred motions in one year, right, against his ex partner. And and how go, what is, is it? What that is that not? Wait, what does it take? Right, to send off alarms and and it's really important to remember that. Um, if you just define domestic violence perpetrators by by their acts of violence, and you don't really get the ways they they pressure, harass, right, uh, ex- and ex- through their behaviors, exhaust, exhaust people, exhaust, exhaust, wear them down, right. and 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 that and that they're they're often very combative and they're often very um, challenging, and that it that takes emotional and physical resources for these systems. It is to me, it it is our responsibility as professionals to be able to have a way to ascertain whether or not we're being manipulated by a perpetrator and call those behaviors to account. And there's so many ways to do that. The ways to do that could be refusal to file a motion and say, hey, listen, mate, you know, you can't use the court this way. That's right. Um, You know, or it can be a mental health professional who is dealing with a perpetrator who says, so, you know, these behaviors that you're engaging in, this is considered coercive control. And not just slapping a bipolar diagnosis on somebody, but, but actually standing against the behaviors, standing up and saying, this is not acceptable. Because on the most basic level, even though we're dealing with adults, we're dealing with adults who have never been held accountable for their behaviors. Well, and you raise a really interesting example, which is is what would happen if we had mental health professionals and addiction professionals who are really good at saying, yes, this person has a genuine addiction problem. This person has genuine depression. And we're concerned that right now they're manifesting a pattern of behaviors that are harmful to other people. And they could say both those things. And they weren't shortchanging. And this is so important, I think, for when we're talking about people who, um, perpetrators who have experienced real trauma in their lives, whether it's it's from racism, whether it's from colonization, whether it's mm-hmm. childhood, physical or sexual abuse. We shouldn't shy away from naming those things. We shouldn't be shying away from really giving people diagnoses of anxiety or depression if that's mm-hmm. really what's going on. And I think part of it is there's been a polarization that, um, well, it's got to be one or the other. You've got to label somebody as a course of control or, or violent or having a mental health issue. And the fields have kind of been at war a little bit. Right. And there's really, in my mind, no reason they should be. And in fact, it makes each one of these fields stronger if the mental health field gets better at identifying and naming coercive control, Mm -hmm. both 
As it impacts victims, but also... Not only is that, it... but being a coercive controller impacts your mental health. Right. I mean, well, that, come that, on. No, I've always said Let's this. Let's just be real. Well, if always... you're wandering around the world like a raging bull trying to control everyone around you, you're going to be freaking neurotic. I almost used the F word. I stopped right. myself. Yeah. You are going to be a neurotic mess. Well, and I <laughs> always say to people that, that people with trauma histories acting out in an abusive or violent way does nothing to help them heal their their past. No, doesn't. Anything, in fact, it can, compounds make, it, can it. make compound and make it worse. And so, and so, I think we can get better on the mental health side and addiction side, integrating these ideas around coercive control. And I think on the the family mm-hmm. violence specialist side, we need to develop our language where we say, "Yes, um, this survivor has an addiction issue, but one is, does it really impact her parenting? Mm-hmm. Two is." Is the perpetrator interfering with her getting recovery? Right. You know, three is it doesn't justify his violence to her. And like really being super clear about these mm-hmm. things in the way we talk. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to um, ignore that survivor's depression or anxiety, but we don't let it define them and become the feature that kind of takes over right. everything. Because when I was working closely day in and day out with child welfare, I can't tell you how many cases came in. And this is another example of how perpetrators... Um, how systems collude with perpetrators, which is it would come in because of a male caregiver's violence, mm-hmm. but all the casework would be with the mom's mental health, depression, and parenting. <laughs> and so, so that really sets up those systems to be manipulated by those perpetrators because right. now all of a sudden, um, uh, the threat I'll call child welfare is, is, is evidenced, you right. know, is real. Like she has, he had the experience of, he, get, he gets violent, she pays the price. Right now we can describe the situation on the ground with these major systems as being open to manipulation. They are easily manipulated right, right now, which really erodes the outcomes for kids, creating more danger for children and for adult survivors of domestic violence. But it erodes our trust in our justice system. It also allows for perpetrators who have power to continue to compound their power if they're a police officer or a judge or a politician and continue to use those systems unchallenged, which causes untold harm, really. The the tendrils of this really right. extend out into the type of corruption that costs us billions of dollars a year. You know, to me, systems manipulation is one of the biggest costs that we have. And I've been doing work with a, a, a state here in the U.S. around around their um, human resources policy around domestic violence. So this is about staff internally. Yeah, right. And, and, and there's parallels with our conversations with OIDV and, and, and police departments around this, which is it's not enough to change your policies and to identify manipulation. Right. If you really want to stop or reduce the way perpetrators manipulate systems, you need to really advertise and communicate to those survivors or potential survivors, look, if he tries to call child welfare and you work in child welfare, okay. let's be really clear about how we're going to handle this in a way that's friendly to you and really try to call out and identify his behavior. Right. Because in the child welfare setting is really a great example because not only might that worker be afraid of losing her kids, mm-hmm. she may also be afraid of losing her job. Right. And so the perpetrator has a double um, uh, 
cudgel or something to use against her yeah. by, by threatening to call child welfare on a worker who's in child welfare. A lot and of, so they're more right. isolated and vulnerable. Same thing for OIDB right. victims. Right. right. You know that, that there's a, there's increased vulnerability because of the association between a system that's supposed to be helpful. Right you know, being used against you. And a lot of times perpetrators' behaviors accelerate in their in their intensity and perpetration the more people participate in their manipulation. The more people who are blind to it, they take a lot of glee right. in torturing their victims by sending, you know, police there for wellness checks or child protection there or mandating that that victim has to go weekly to get a drug test when they've never even ever tested for drugs and don't have a drug addiction problem. You know, their perpetration starts to really accelerate with professional uh, collusion, even though it may not be intentional, because really it's like a two-year-old child. It's like a toddler. If anybody has raised children, you know those phases that toddlers go through where you just have to challenge every single behavior it happens with teenagers too I, I just, you were just looking I, at me no like, no no, no I, doesn't this happen with I, teenagers i just have too? this absurd image of of a toddler calling the police on their parents <laughs> right. you know and threatening to call but, the police but it really we know that older is. kids do that but it i really have this image is. of a toddler doing that you have to assess and you have to you have to be able to look a perpetrator squarely in the eye and say you know you cannot do this if you call child protection again Right. These will be the consequences to you. And we've, we, I've seen that at work. You know, we're boundaries set with perpetrators, and it actually works and can be effective. It, can, you know, this is one of those things where it can be effective, or it could escalate. Or them. it could escalate. But, it's but, true. But, but yeah. and this is where we have to approach slowly, but not once be afraid. the once the once the tools, the plates. Right. But really, the places where I've seen it like get violent is because the perpetrator was really used to having those tools at their disposal. And now suddenly some professional came in the mix and they were like, no, 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 we're drawing a boundary around you. And that's when things can really escalate into violence. Because or they're calm in, down. They, or calm down. Or calm down. Right. I mean, I think this is where... It's a pivotal moment. It's, 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 we have to have this differential understanding that uh, and, and go step by step, but not assume one, it's going to always make it worse or that it's always going to make it better. We right. actually have to look... And also it can help to look at the perpetrator's pattern of past interventions yes. by systems. Yes. Because I know I've worked on cases that were very serious. I think about one where the survivor, I talked to her a few years later, and she said, oh, that period when you called child welfare on him was the safest period I had in a long time because mm -hmm. they were watching him and he didn't want to get in trouble. And he didn't want to, yeah. And yeah. I think we have to really understand that some perpetrators respond positively to that outside intervention mm -hmm. and some respond negatively and escalate. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the police okay. and how perpetrators uh, manipulate them. And the things I've got on my list is um, calling law enforcement, making allegations of violence by the survivor that could be completely untrue or threatening her or acting in a way that then she responds with violence because she's afraid right? because of, of, a, of a, a feeling of threat to her life, of his history of being violent. And then him picking up the phone and calling the police mm -hmm. and, um, and, well, and with getting coercive, arrested. With coercive control a lot, it's that the psychological manipulations and the verbal abuse become so intense that a lot of victims will start to fight back physically against that, especially if they're in a corner, literally right. in a corner, huddled in a corner while somebody screams and yells over them. And then if they 
slap their perpetrator or try to scratch their way out of the situation and escape, that's when the perpetrator will call the police and have that victim arrested. So that's, you know, those are real manipulations that happen all the time. And then we have things like coercing somebody into committing a crime. That's right. Or committing a crime and setting them up to take the fall for it. Right. You know, so you'll have, um, for instance, um, domestic violence perpetrators coercing partners to shoplift or to steal. Mm-hmm. Some of the picture may be you don't have resources for the kids. Mm-hmm. You, you're going to go and do it, but or you're going to go and do this thing. Or, um, you know, writing false checks. Mm-hmm. In their name, and mm-hmm. you know, financial things. You know, it's a very common one. Mm-hmm. You know, these things sometimes straddle sort of civil and and criminal. Mm-hmm. But you know, engaging in these things, and you know, I can't tell you how many survivors talk about. You know, he opened credit cards up in my name, or he right. he wrote false checks in my name, and I was the one held responsible for this. Mm-hmm. And so you have all these different ways law enforcement is is used by perpetrators. I want to add one. Okay. Welfare checks. Mental health checks, wellness checks are a really big avenue for perpetrators to harass their victims, particularly if the police that they're dealing with are not domestic violence informed or if there is a perpetrator as a police officer who is who is the one answering those calls. Well, the, because yeah. they will focus on the victim. They are very willing to do that. And particularly within OIDV, Welfare checks are the biggest way that victims of police perpetrators are harassed and stalked and shown that they can go anywhere, they can move anywhere, and that that they will still have a police officer show up at their door unannounced, knock on their door, accuse them of being mentally unwell, perhaps drag them away, and this is the power of the perpetrator. And then I get, as the perpetrator, to go to family court or somewhere else and say, I was worried. I'm the good guy. I was yeah. worried that she wasn't okay or the kids weren't okay. Right. So I sent police. I did the right thing. I followed the rules. I didn't go over there. Right. I didn't harass her. I didn't right. stalk her. I used the system right. to check on her and I'm right. the good guy. Right. And I think that's really, um, that, that's really, um, very common. Like you, like you said. Yeah. If, so, you, if you're, if you're a police officer and you're getting multiple calls for welfare checks, from a home that has had multiple domestic violence uh, incidences, then you you need to stop and question, who's the person who's pulling the strings here? Come on, stop and think about it. And you need to really assess the situation because you showing up like that is their power and control. You are becoming their tool. Right. I almost used the teenage, you know, like expression of that. Yes. Okay. Don't, don't be their don't be their tool. That's right, and I and I think about the the case that was presented to me where he actually she was going to addiction program and he called and got her arrested while she was in her addiction program, right. you know. And I think that these things really show this this tremendous amount of power, right, and ability to manipulate systems. And I think this is where we need to sit back and 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 say, wait a second, how did how do these systems get to be used by perpetrators mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, what, what do we do about it? So I, I think we've talked about, I mean, I think it's outside the scope of this, this podcast to talk about mental health more or religious institutions. That's a whole other thing. I think, I mean, unless you want to, yeah, you I, just, talk about I do it a think, bit. I do think that you have to be super aware 
of the ecology around survivors, particularly if you are somebody that is, you know, in child welfare or in any of these systems that have a huge amount of, of authority to, to really interrupt somebody's life and change the course of their life and change the dynamics of their family and cause great trauma, actually, that we really need to get better at understanding where we're being manipulated by perpetrators, which number one is increasing danger. It's increasing danger for children and right. increasing trauma for them right. as well. Right. It's costing us a lot of money. And, and I think part <laughs> of it is, you know, to, to just try to wrap up on the, on the, on the positive side or steps we can do, you look at, you know, the work we're doing in this, um, in this project in New South Wales with these health workers. And we're really training them to think about how do you, if you're a clinician, how do you use your power to in a more domestic violence informed way? Mm-hmm. How do you not just look at diagnoses and and just sort of accept them, but really how do you you look back to connect it back to perpetrators' patterns, mm-hmm. you know, and then connect it back to you know what kind of advocacy does this person need? Are they safe now? Do they have control? So really being really integrated, very much on that side, and then on the family court side, you know, we're working with family court systems all over the world, and a lot of these family court systems have gotten started to get savvy to domestic violence as a factor, which is great, which wasn't true a number of years ago. But they'll have, uh, I'm thinking about one state in the U.S., they'll have 12 or 16 factors that evaluators are supposed to continue without any any real detail about how they're supposed to do it. But like, how well do people co-parent together and and uh, the parent's relationship with the child? And, and they'll have domestic violence as one of the factors. And we refer to this as, as, in many ways, domestic violence neglectful or precompetent because the domestic violence is siloed to that one factor mm-hmm. and that the evaluators are not trained to kind of say, wait a second, we should consider domestic violence perpetration when we're considering the factor that's related to the to this parent's relationship to their kids. We should factor it in when we're evaluating the co-parenting relationship. We should now contextualize why... Um, uh, the one parent was resistant to contact orders, mm-hmm. not as a parental alienation thing, but if we contextualize it, mm-hmm. we can now see it as, as related to the domestic violence perpetration. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we just need to take the, the professionals need to take the, the progress we've made already and take it to the next level. I think we've got a lot of good groundwork. And again, this is me thinking in a positive vein, but really put the pieces together just a little bit better to be a little more conscious of perpetrators, how they target mm-hmm. our system that we're in. Mm-hmm. And then how do we um, uh, vaccinate ourselves? I was looking for a Perpetrator metaphor. Perpetrator-proof yourself, I, people. I was, I was looking at a metaphor, you know, and I'm thinking about the, like, security <laughs> military one, like, harden. Hardening. Harden, like, harden your perimeter. I didn't like that one. I said, but then, oh, we've got vaccination. How do you vaccinate yourself against those manipulations? How do you, right. how do you build up your antibodies? Right. So, um, perpetrator so you, proof yourself. Perpetrator proof yourself, yourself. Right. But how do you do that? And in a way that really, um, makes you better at your job, makes you right. a better clinician, makes you a right. better addictions counselor, makes you a better family court evaluator, makes you better at this because it means, you're going to do your mission, whether it's creating the best recommendations around custody and access for the court mm-hmm. or really helping that person who is a trauma survivor, who's abuse survivor heal. Because if, if they're 
living with continued coercion or threats right. or violence. Right. You could be the best clinician in the world. And we're still being abused, so it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. So so I hope people listen to this episode and really think about where they're sitting. And, and, I, and I hope that survivors who are listening to the show really get validation. Right. I hope they feel seen. Yeah. Because this is real. Yeah. This happens every day. Yeah. You come back to me almost every day with examples of, of this where... Right. And I think it's important to understand, because I think sometimes we talk about the language of system failures... Mm-hmm. And I'd prefer to really name the way perpetrators actively try to manipulate systems mm-hmm. and then how systems are vulnerable. I think that gives us a better roadmap mm-hmm. than just, well, systems failures. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you're, you're, you're the nice person and I'm the cranky survivor. And I'm going to say that it, it's very deeply impactful to survivors to have uh, professionals all around them that are failing to do their job and identify the perpetration of the perpetrator. It is incredibly devastating and dangerous and incredibly devastating to children and their well-being. You know, so it's incredibly common and we just have to start facing it and coming up with ways to perpetrator proof ourselves as professionals. Perpetrator proof ourselves. Yes. I like that. Okay. So I think we really run the gamut for today's show. I think we have to. Okay. And you've been listening to Partner with a Survivor. And I'm Ruth Stearns Mandel, the e-learning and communications manager and crawler. And crawler and and uh, seeker of little seeker nuggets of, of seeker information. Seeker of nuggets. Nuggets of information. If you have nuggets for me, please send them to That's me. That's right. And I'm David Mandel, executive director of the Safe and Together Institute. And we hope that you subscribe to our podcast, you share it with other people if you like this, um, that you go to our website, safetytogetherinstitute.com, to check out all our offerings and Lots of free material and resources like our Choose to Change guide and our Ally guide and uh, all sorts of things. And we're going to be coming out with new material pretty much all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, also go, if you want to take e-learning, go to our virtual academy at academy.safeandtogetherinstitute.com. And you've put together a discount I hope coupon. I have. I have. It's, it's, uh, it's partnered. All lowercase, and it is a 15% off coupon for any training. Partnered with an ED at the end? Yes, or, okay. partnered. Par- partnered, like yes. the title of the show. Yes. Um, and um, I think that's it. Yeah, and we're out. And we're out. 